0: Welcome to Cabeza de Vaca. Episode 17, Malacosa. I'm Brandon Seal. One of the most memorable stories in Cabeza de Vaca's account is the story of Malacosa, or bad thing in English. It's one of the few times in his account where he gives us a Native American perspective, a perspective on how they viewed their changing world during this time. But I'll be honest, the more I read it, the more I think it paints a pretty unflattering portrait of Cabeza de Vaca and his companions. Here's the story of Malacosa from Cabeza de Vaca's account quoted here at length. Quote, from the natives' telling of it, it started 15 or 16 years ago. They told us that a man had gone about in that land whom they called Malacosa, short-haired with a beard, though his face could never clearly be made out. Just before he arrived outside someone's lodge, the occupant of that lodge said that their hair would stand on end and they would tremble, and then suddenly Malacosa would appear in the doorway holding burning sticks. Then he would enter their lodge and take whatever he wanted from them. Then he would make three cuts into their sides with a very sharp rock, one hand wide and two palms long. Then He would stick his hand into the incisions and remove their intestines, and he would cut off several inches, and the part that he cut off, he would throw into the fire. Then he would make three cuts into their arm, in the crook of the elbow, and dislocate it. A short while later, he would reset the arm and place his hands over the wounds, and they told us that when he was done, everything healed right up. The natives said that many times when they were dancing in their religious ceremonies, Malacosa would appear among them, sometimes dressed as a woman, sometimes as a man, and that when he wanted to, he could pick up an entire lodge and lift it into the air, and a little later, bring it crashing down. They also said that many times they gave him food to eat, but that he never ate, and that when they asked him where he came from and where he had his home, he just pointed to a hole in the ground and said that his home was down below." As you can see, it's such a strange little tale. As Cabeza de Vaca scholars Adorno and Pouts point out, though, the story actually fits into the long tradition of Native American trickster tales, something which isn't particularly important for our purposes, but which lends it a certain authenticity in my mind. And what's more interesting for our purposes is how much Malacosa sounds like Cabeza de Vaca, or Castillo, or Dorantes, or Esteban, or an amalgamation of the four of them. Let us count the ways. First, this mysterious character, Malacosa, according to Cabeza de Vaca, first appeared in the region 15 or 16 years ago, he says. Well, counting backwards from the summer of 1535, where we are now, that puts Malacosa's first appearance in about 1519, the precise year that Cortes landed in Mexico, and when other Castilians set foot on the Panuco River only 400 or so miles south of where Cabeza de Vaca and his companions sat now. Interesting, right? Next, the reference to Malacosa being bearded sounds distinctly European. Next, according to the story, Malacosa was in the habit of appearing unannounced and quite suddenly, just as Cabeza de Vaca and his companions had a habit of doing. Next, we hear that Malacosa carried with him, quote, burning sticks, end quote. Well, the last figure that we saw walking around with burning sticks was Cabeza de Vaca himself, wandering lost along the Rio Grande two episodes ago with his only protection against the elements being the two firebrands that he had salvaged from a burning bush. All right, and it actually gets even more uncanny the deeper we go with this. We learn that Malacosa's modus operandi was to enter a lodge outside of which he had appeared and then just take whatever he wanted. Is this how the natives, perhaps, perceived the four medicine men in their midst, charging them for their cures at the going rate of everything that they owned? We also hear that Malacosa was roaming the countryside, dislocating joints, and then, quote, a short while later, he would reset the arm and place his hands over the wounds. And the natives told us that when he was done, everything healed right up, end quote. Who else do we know roaming around the countryside, setting broken bones and laying on hands? And there's something familiar as well to how Malacosa affects his cures. We hear that he would make three cuts near the affected area, then cut into the sides of the victims with a rock, quote, one hand wide and two palms long, end quote. Well, we've also heard of the expeditionaries bleeding and cauterizing their patients. And we just saw Cabeza de Vaca a few episodes ago being gifted a flint one and a half palms long. And it continues. Sometimes, we learn, Malacosa would appear dressed like a man. Sometimes, he would appear dressed like a woman. Recall back to episode 9, when we saw Cabeza de Vaca doing a lot of traditionally, quote-unquote, women's work. Most notably, as a merchant, moving about amongst the many tribes of the region. We also learn that Malacosa's hosts often tried to offer him food, but that he never ate it kind of like the way that Cabeza de Vaca and his companions very publicly gave away almost all the food that they were gifted for performing their cures. And lastly, when the natives asked Malacosa quote, where he came from and where he had his home, he pointed to a hole in the ground and said that his home was down below. End quote. And now recall back to Cabeza de Vaca's experience two episodes ago when he had scratched out a hole in the ground and surrounded himself by fires to protect himself at night after he'd gotten lost for five nights in the South Texas wilderness. Well, the fires had ignited the grass that he'd used to cover himself in that hole, leading to him having to leap out of the flaming hole like a demon emerging from the underworld, or like Malacosa coming out of his home. Maybe because the deeds and misdeeds of Malacosa sounded so much like their own, the expeditionaries felt compelled to rebut the story right after they heard it. Quote, We told the natives that Malacosa was evil. In the best way we could, we made them understand that if they were to believe in God our Lord, and if they were to be Christians like us, that they wouldn't need to fear him. And that in fact, he wouldn't dare come do those things to them. And, and, and pay attention to this part here. And that we knew it for certain that as long as we were in this land, he would not dare appear in it. End quote. The expeditionaries, quote-unquote, knew this. Is this kind of like the way that Clark Kent always knows when Superman isn't going to be around? Pretty much everyone who has read Cabeza de Vaca closely has noted the parallels between Malacosa and the four expeditionaries. And Cabeza de Vaca seems to have noticed them as well. I mean, proof of the impression that it made is the fact that Cabeza de Vaca chose to include this story, and really only this story, of all the Native American folk tales that he heard during his years in the New World. And he includes it in his account, even though this little narrative within a narrative serves no plot purpose. It doesn't seem to do anything to advance the expeditionaries on their quest to keep moving. But it makes me believe that Cabeza de Vaca must have had some other reason then for wanting to include it. So let's see what we can come up with. Well, as we said, on its own... Malacosa fits very nicely in the line of Native American trickster tales that show up across many different Native American oral traditions. Yet in Cabeza de Vaca's telling, he actually sounds more like a European demonic doppelganger for the expeditionaries themselves. In this instance, then, Malacosa serves a dual literary purpose, representing both new and old world literary traditions, even as he also represents the duality within the expeditionary medicine men themselves. And here's what I mean. Malacosa straddles the lines of literary traditions just as he straddles the, quote, line separating good and evil that passes right through every human heart, through all human hearts, end quote, to paraphrase Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And it's particularly interesting because I think this notion of good and evil actually reflects a more Native American than classically Catholic worldview. Here's a quote from archaeologist Carolyn Boyd referring specifically to certain Mesoamerican mythologies, but she's using it to describe belief systems that she's found as far north as the Rio Grande. Quote, Everything in the Nahua universe had an inamic partner. Masculine-feminine, east-west, hot-cold, day-night, light-darkness, etc. The becoming of reality and the creation and perpetuation of the cosmos involved the struggle between inamic pairs and the alternating dominance of one inamic over its partner, end quote. And this Native American notion of the binary nature of the world extended to their notion of individuals as well. They believed that each human being was actually the receptacle for two or more souls, for two or more forces acting sometimes in opposition to one another, in the same way that Malacosa seems to be expressing a darker version of the expeditionary's religious motivations. And so what I like about this, if this convoluted, complicated interpretation of the Malacosa story is true, is that it means that Cabeza de Vaca isn't just retelling us a very thematically Native American folktale. He's using the Malacosa story to work in a very thematically Native American belief system into his narrative. But then watch now how Cabeza de Vaca passes some very Western biblical allusions through this new Native American worldview that he's trying on. Just after he concludes the Malacosa story, he describes how he and his companions suffered through the South Texas summers foraging for roots and digestible grasses and mesquite beans. Quote, I've said already that we went naked in that land, and not being accustomed to it, we shed our skin twice a year like snakes, End quote. Which I find to be an interesting analogy for Cabeza de Vaca to make at this point in the story. Because this is just at the moment when he's contending with the good and evil in his own soul. And it's just at the moment when he's wandering around as naked as Adam, even more naked in a way, because not only does he not have clothes, but he actually has the sun sloughing off layers of his epidermis with the thorns of the monte doing the rest. But it's precisely at this moment that Cabeza de Vaca compares himself to the animal that warned the first man and woman about the dangers of the knowledge of good and evil. But also at this moment, as he's wandering around the monte, bleeding all over himself from thorn pricks and from his raw feet, Cabeza de Vaca jumps from the imagery of original sin to the image of the figure sent to redeem that sin. Quote, the only relief and consolation I had in the midst of all these labors was to think of the suffering of our Savior Jesus Christ and the blood he shed for me, and to consider how much greater must have been the pain of the thorns he suffered than that which I was suffering. End quote. Juxtaposing this imagery of a serpent and the passion of Christ is a really elegant way for Cabeza de Vaca to signal to us, to represent the duality that's at play within a human soul, just as he has done by telling the story of Malacosa. And looking at it through this lens, suddenly the allusions to the Garden of Eden and the Passion of Christ aren't just random non-sequiturs following the Malacosa story. They're colorful, culture-specific images meant to drive home a message in biblical European terms that he has also just expressed by telling a Native American folktale. So at one level, I think the Malacosa story and how Cabeza de Vaca uses it in his account really helps establish the cultural fluency that he and his companions have acquired by this point in the story. But really, I'm pointing all this out because in my interpretation, this is all Cabeza de Vaca's artful way of expressing he and his companions' doubts about continuing as medicine men at this point in their journey because in acting as divine instruments, they were playing with forces they didn't fully understand, and forces that certainly they couldn't control. It gets lost in the 500-year-old prose, but everything that was happening around them was very, very weird. They'd never seen anything like this. Wouldn't you feel a little bit funny about what you were doing, if suddenly all around you, you saw the sick healed, the lame walk, the dead live? And all of this occurring after hours-long ceremonies that often ended late at night with intoxicating rituals that contained within them always a hint of violence, or a hint of something uncontrolled and uncontrollable at least. Should they really keep doing this? The expeditionaries were beginning to ask themselves. What if the cures stopped working? Maybe, in fact, one of their cures hadn't worked, and this is what scared them. Cabeza de Vaca does later mention one Indian that they failed to heal though apparently even this patient, quote, still believed that we were able to heal him, end quote. Anyway, all of this is my build-up just to try to explain why, in the spring of 1535, Cabeza de Vaca and his fellow expeditionaries suddenly stopped performing cures, despite the fact that things seemed to be going so well for them all of a sudden. In the space of a few months, their faith healing had elevated them from unloved slaves to fetid guests celebrities even in native South Texas. And their new status brought with it some freedom from want and even allowed them to buy some goodwill by distributing their honorariums to the people all around them. And so this is the best I can come up with for why Cabeza de Vaca included the Malacosa story at this point in his narrative and why he and his companions stopped their cures immediately after. It's because they were confused and they were doubtful as to what they were doing. And they wanted to find a more straightforward, less risky, more controlled way to move across the country. And so starting in the spring of 1535, the four medicine men closed their ministry and tried to make an honest living as skilled artisans. Quote, I made a deal with the Indians to make combs, arrows, bows, and nets for them. End quote, Cabez de Vaca tells us. The expeditionaries also offered to make mats, and to scrape the hides of the game that the natives were able to bring down. Cabeza de Vaca explains that the natives didn't like to do these things because they were basically worried that they would starve if they didn't spend every spare minute foraging for food. But Cabeza de Vaca and his companions realized that scraping hides actually yielded small but sufficient quantities of protein, which was a rare treat indeed here in South Texas, and the hides themselves could serve the expeditionaries as warmth through the cold winter months, and as a form of currency once they started trekking south again. But as the spring of 1535 progressed, the expeditionaries soon realized that they weren't getting anywhere. The region was just too barren and too unyielding, and they could never seem to do enough to get ahead, much less to even get by. They began to second-guess their career change. On reflection, they came to feel that by trying to save themselves by their own hand, Instead of by allowing themselves to be instruments for God's will, they had lost all of the status and security that they had had back when they had trusted in Him, capital H, more blindly. They thought they had seen a linear path forward, a way to stack up enough treasures on earth to protect themselves from want. What they found, however, was that they couldn't. At least when they had been medicine men, God had provided for them and showed them a path forward. Yes, it was weird, And it was kind of scary, but being medicine men had brought them security, and frankly, it made the natives amongst whom they were living happier. And so reflecting back on that now, they knew what they needed to do. The four expeditionaries bartered the hides and other meager goods they had accumulated for two dogs, which they could carry with them as a self-transporting food source. Sorry, dog lovers. And they stocked up on as many roast prickly pears as they could. And then once again, quote, we commended ourselves to God, our Lord, that he might be our guide, and took leave of these Indians, end quote. Incomendámonos, Cabeza de Vaca says, twice in the course of one paragraph. And so then finally, sometime in the summer of 1535, they began marching south once again. It didn't take long for them to come upon a new village, and a chance to see if their old gambit would work. Could they really just pick up the old medicine man routine where they had left off? Or had the stories of Malacosa circulating through the countryside ruined any chances they had of being welcomed into any village? It certainly didn't seem to go that well at this new village. When they were first sighted by the villagers, the villagers fled. Replaying the tactics that they had used with the Avavar tribe, with whom they had first tried out the medicine man routine, the expeditionaries... Or perhaps more specifically, Esteban called out to the villagers who hung back, reassuring them of their good intentions. Cautiously, a few of the villagers came forward. Quote, they approached and placed their hands on our faces and bodies and then rubbed them on their own faces and bodies. End quote. The expeditionaries had no idea what to make of this. Still, the villagers signaled for them to follow them back now into their lodges of which there were a fair number, 50 Cabeza de Vaca estimates, which would make it perhaps the largest community that the expeditionaries had seen since Florida. The villagers showed the expeditionaries to their own lodges, putting them up for the night, but with the four expeditionaries still puzzling over what the villagers' curious reception meant. Were they expressing their gratitude for the arrival of four medicine men? Or did they believe they had just captured four malas cosas? Or worse, maybe the villagers had just captured four imposters, mortals like them with no more power than the stones in the field. Once again, the four expeditionary medicine men were going to have to prove themselves on the next episode of Cabeza de Vaca. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and think this is a story worth sharing, Please tell one friend. And if you haven't already, please go rate and leave a review for us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out the webpage associated with this episode on the home of nonprofit journalism for a better San Antonio. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Conseco. Sound engineering by Stephen Bennett. The music for this series is entitled Apache, and was composed by Kevin Graham and is available on Soundstripe. A special thanks to Father David Garcia to Dr. Frank De La Teja with the Texas State Historical Association, to Steve Davis, Curator of the Whitliff Collections at Texas State University, to Professor Andres Resendez at the University of California, Davis, to Dr. Carolyn Boyd with the Shumla Archaeological Research and Education Center and also Texas State, and to David Dunham with Texas Monthly for all their support and suggestions. You'll hear more about them throughout the season. And for more information about us and our other projects, you can check out our website at www.brandonseal.com dot com.